Welcome to the In Your Element Fertility Podcast. I'm Jennifer Edmonds. I'm a yoga teacher, Pilates instructor, meditation and breathwork coach. And for the last 15 years, I've been helping women on their journeys to motherhood and beyond. This is the podcast that blends both science and spirit with everything you need to know as you navigate your fertility journey. If you're looking for a way to support your physical health, your mental health, reduce anxiety and reclaim some joy back into your life to make the process of trying to conceive feel easier, then you've come to the right place. I'll show you how to apply the latest scientific research along with your energy and mindset to provide you with all the tools you need as you're trying to conceive. This is the In Your Element Fertility Podcast. Have you ever wondered what happens behind the scenes at your IVF clinic? Once your eggs are collected and they're taken into the lab, they're given to people who literally hold your future in their hands. Well, today's guest is going to walk us through exactly that. What happens after an egg collection? Why don't some eggs fertilize? Why don't they make it to day five? How do they then decide which embryos to transfer? And how do they decide when to transfer? What gets frozen? What doesn't? And how can we prepare ourselves for this whole process? Elise Barnes is an embryologist, educator, and content creator. After obtaining her bachelor's degree in genetics from North Carolina State University, she established herself as a skilled embryologist in the field of reproductive medicine. In addition to her hands-on work in the IVF lab, Elise is a passionate educator for fertility awareness. She strives to empower individuals on their fertility journey by dispelling information and providing support. So let's begin. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. So we have so much to cover today. So many questions that students have been sending in. And I think that this is something that we're going to be talking more and more about as the years go on. It seems like every second person who is going through fertility struggles at the moment seems to be heading down the IVF route. So we are going to be talking about all the things today around IVF and what it all means, questions that might come up, ways we can prepare, ways we can then analyze what's happening and then move forward from there. So can we start by learning a little bit more about you, what you do, and how did you get into this kind of field? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you said, I'm an embryologist. I have been in the field almost six years. Yeah. And my background is in genetics and I got a minor in biotech. So really, this is a field that doesn't have specific schooling. So you don't have to have like a degree in embryology. Um, Most embryologists have degrees in biology, chemistry, animal science, some sort of science. And then they are trained on the job. Some come from research and get into the field. So really, all you need is a genetics degree, and then some embryologists get trained on the job like I did. I started in andrology, which is sperm and often like hormone, blood testing and things like that. And then I trained into embryology. And so I've been doing that for about six years now. I really enjoy it. Um, It is very rewarding. I think it's there's so much information to learn. Like I said, I've been doing this for a few years now, but there's still so many things that I haven't learned and there's so much research that's coming out. So there's always um, lots of things, things to learn, which is what I really love about the field. Can you tell us exactly what an embryologist does? Like what, when we are in the IVF lab, we collect the eggs, 
and then you take over. Tell us what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So that is a big question I get. We're very behind the scenes, but we are kind of a big part of the process. So we are the ones who are responsible for all of your gametes. So sperm, eggs, embryos, we do, we are in charge of kind of all of it. So we do, um, you know, some semen analysis testing to sperm processing to egg retrievals, egg freezing, egg warming, um, embryo creation. So we are actually the ones who are creating your embryos. We do the inseminations. Uh, We are responsible for culturing them out to embryos. Um, And then we freeze them. We do the biopsy. So we're doing all the technical skills in the lab, um, as well as you know, some labs are doing a little research on the side and we do all the paperwork and charting involved with that. And you may hear from us when we call you for an embryology report. So when you hear how many embryos that you have, you know, from your cycle, it's tip you're typically hearing from us, whether that be from an email or a phone call or like a portal message. It's usually us that are the ones, you know, sending that message. <laughs> Amazing. We can talk about, I mean, there are so many different facets that, uh, you know, we can go into, but, you know, there are so many people that ask the questions around, okay, IVF is is like this blanket term, but a lot of the work that you would do initially would be through ICSI. So what is the difference? Why are we doing IVF versus ICSI? And what are the different reasons for that and the outcomes? Yeah. So IVF really started with conventional insemination, which is what we call IVF, traditional IVF where we are culturing the egg in a a drop of media, which provides nutrients for the eggs with sperm. So we kind of sit them in the dish, the sperm is surrounding them, and it's a little bit more of a natural way, if you will, because the sperm still has to penetrate the egg and and all of those things. With the invention of ICSI coming along a couple decades later, it allowed us to help patients who had male factor infertility, because really you want higher sperm numbers to do conventional insemination, you have to have more sperm. And so for patients who had male factor infertility, they really struggled with conventional IVF. And ICSI allowed us to bypass some of the the aspects and make sure that the sperm gets directly into the egg. So that ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And that allows us to pick one sperm and place it directly into the egg. So we know that the sperm is in there and that really helps those patients who have those low sperm sperm counts and things like that. Mm. So when you are doing something like ICSI and you know that sperm is in there, why would the egg not fertilize? Yeah, so that's another question. Like, well, we know all the sperm got in there, but we still don't have 100% fertilization. And we don't know for sure. So there's still so many unknown variables in the whole process, but most research shows that it's likely due to some sort of DNA genetic abnormality. So there, even though we got the sperm into the egg, there are some things that still have to activate and um, work together to create this fertilization. And sometimes it's an egg issue. Sometimes it's a sperm issue. Sometimes we don't know. And for some reason, there is an issue with, with activation there that's likely due to maybe a genetic um, deficiency or things like that. So Um, We typically expect 80% or higher of the eggs that we inject, which are mature eggs, should fertilize. Usually if we see patients with lower fertilization rates, we may be doing some kind of investigating to see why that is. Do they have poor sperm quality? Do they have high DNA fragmentation um, of the sperm? Are we seeing an egg quality issue here? Uh, Age plays a factor as well. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. We don't always know for sure. 
Uh, but we try our best to give the physicians any feedback that we see um, from the eggs and the sperm in the lab. <laughs> kind of like mm. they're talking to us. I guess that leads into the big question that I get all the time and that so many people asked me in preparation for this conversation today. What are your actual chances of the egg you collecting becoming an embryo that you can then transfer later on? What are our numbers? Yeah. So this is a big one. I think this is a really big misconception about IVF is that going into it, you're going to have an embryo. You're going to be successful because people are like, oh, just do IVF. And it's not quite as easy as it sounds. There are a lot of people who have to do multiple cycles to get just one embryo to transfer. It's definitely not a guarantee. So I always like to mention that. Uh, But there are some statistics on, you know, the attrition. You don't, just because you get 10 eggs doesn't mean we get 10 embryos. There's a big attrition right there. Um, And I usually like to start with fertilization. You can go back a little bit further, but it's a little harder to do. Not every egg we get will be mature. And so we can only inject mature eggs because those are the ones that typically fertilize. Your eggs are paused in a state of maturity. And as we do that stimulation, those eggs should mature. But when we do the retrieval, sometimes we'll, you know, suction, the the physician will aspirate a follicle that's maybe a little bit smaller and the egg that we get is not mature. And so we cannot inject those eggs. So of the mature eggs that we get, say we have 10 eggs. We expect about 80 of them to fertilize. So now we're down to eight. We're on day one. About eight of them have fertilized. We've got eight in culture. And really from that point, we see about 50% of those eggs make it to a blastocyst. So if we're using our example, 10 eggs were retrieved and injected. Eight of them fertilized. And we're expecting to see about four of those eggs make it to a blastocyst. Um, And again, that is on average... It does depend on a lot of factors. Um, If we're using, you know, poor quality sperm or the patient's a little bit older or they have other obstacles to overcome, we may see some changes in that. Um, But on average, that's about what we see. We see about 50% blast conversion from fertilization. So hopefully that can give you kind of a number to to think about when you're starting that cycle. Because I know the waiting is the hardest part. That's what patients tell me all the time, that waiting for that report is not fun. And so hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of what to expect when you get that phone call. Oh, those five days between collection and day five is it's literally five years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, nothing compares to that, that waiting period. It's just insane. Can we talk a little bit about transfers? So there are, you know, there are places around the world that will do transfers on day three. I know a lot of clinics prefer day five. Some even transfer earlier than that. In some parts of Europe, they have different procedures and different policies around that. What are you looking for when you're doing a transfer and why would you do, say, a day three versus a day five or day six? Yeah, so this is very dependent on the kind of clinic and physician's philosophy And it depends a lot on the patient as well. So I won't speak to some of the things that physicians deal with. I'm not a physician and I could not offer any medical advice. I always like to say that. (laughs) But from a lab perspective, research has shown us that we have higher pregnancy rates with blastocysts. If we can grow them out a little bit further, because really the hardest part for us as embryologists is choosing that embryo. How do we know that this is the one that's going to do it? And having them culture out a couple more days kind of eliminate some of the other embryos. So it gives us less to choose from, meaning that our pregnancy rates are a little bit higher. 
And really, it depends a lot on the patient as to whether, you know, a day three or a day five transfer is, is better suited. So if a patient is really planning for any sort of testing as in like PGT, genetic testing, um, for aneuploidy and things like that, th- those are really day five blastocysts because we have to be able to biopsy the embryos and we re- really prefer to do that on day five, day six, or potentially day seven. I've seen in my experience that patients who have lower numbers are more likely to do a day three transfer. If you've only got two or three blasts kind of in culture, a lot of times they want to give them a shot and they want to go ahead and transfer all of them. You know, like I said, it really depends a lot on on the patient. If they're a little bit older and know that they don't want to do genetic testing, they're going to transfer everything that they have regardless, you know, a day three transfer may be a good option for them. Um, It's definitely something you want to talk with your physician about ask them about these things. Hey, you're suggesting I do a day five transfer. Why is that? Why is that? You know, I had a friend who said, you know, their physician wanted them to do a day three transfer. You know, what, what are your parameters? Because different physicians have different philosophies on those things. Um, and that can come into play when they're making that decision with the patient. Um, some of it has to do with research. Some of it has to do with their experience and their preference. Um, so definitely make sure you have that conversation with your physician. If you're wanting to know more about that decision uh, that they've made or that they've made with you. Um, I think that's a, a great open dialogue to have. Yes. We, yeah, let's hope we all have that with all of our doctors, right? Is there yeah. some thinking around the idea that a day three embryo has more of a chance of making it inside the womb as opposed to inside the lab? Yeah. So I was going to mention that as well. There are some physicians who believe that the, we can only mimic the conditions of the body so well. Um, it isn't the body and everybody, everybody's body is different. And so um, we do our best to mimic that same atmosphere, but we, we can't, it's not going to be perfect. And so there are some physicians who think, Hey, this is going to do better back in the body. And I, that's totally fine. If that's their perspective, research wise doesn't necessarily show that, but I think it's a really a patient to patient sort of thing. It may be a better fit for that patient. And so that's why I think that's totally fine for, for patients to do that. Um, it's definitely, and if that's something that you want to do, like if you're saying, I want to have a transfer, whether I get to a blastocyst or not, have that conversation with your doctor, because there are some times where patients, this may be their one chance, or they're really wanting to get to that transfer. A day three transfer may be a good fit. Hey, we want to get to a transfer. We've got low numbers. You know, we're, this is the waiting game is really hard. We don't want to do PGT testing. Let's go ahead and do it. I think that's great. One thing to keep in mind is day three transfers, we typically transfer more than one versus a day five, day six, or day seven. The standard is pretty much one unless you have some other, you know, failed transfers, um, maybe a little bit older, things like that, maybe more than one. But day three, because they have lower chances of pregnancy, physicians are more likely to do two or three or two or three or four because it's not all of those day three embryos would have made it to blastocyst. So keep that in mind. It's usually larger numbers on day three than it is on day five if you're doing a transfer. No, it makes perfect sense. Can we talk about moving out to day five, day six? And I noticed that you put up a really interesting post recently about actually culturing embryos to day seven and what those day seven embryos will start to look like. And the pregnancy rates weren't as high, but they weren't that low. So this is not something you hear about very often. So can we talk about the idea of letting them culture for longer? Who's doing this? Is this new? What are our ways that we can ask our doctor about that? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. I have the philosophy that all clinics and all labs should be culturing to day seven um, because there are a lot of factors involved in the speed at which your embryos grow. Some of it could be genetic and you know personal to you. Some of it could be the environment and the lab. And so you know, a lot of times patients get very concerned if they don't have day five embryos, but they have day six embryos. And that may not be their, you know, something that they've caused at all. Usually it's not. Um, usually it's lab environment and there are different incubators. There's different, you know, medias that we can use, different dishes. And then someone in Florida is going to have different um, parameters and someone in Colorado where it's very dry and a different climate. So all of those things come into play when we're talking about how long it takes for an embryo to make it to blastocyst. And so if we push them that extra day, I think it's worth it. In terms of workflow, as someone who works in the lab, it doesn't create much extra work for me. It doesn't cost me any more money in terms of lab supplies because they're already in the culture media. Um, it may cost a little extra gas and incubator time, but I think it's worth it because studies have shown us that even though the rates are lower, they're not zero. And for that patient who only has one or two blasts, if they have an option and the potential to get an extra blast by waiting to day seven, I think that's so worth it because I know it's worth it for the patient. The patient would, would you know, nine times out of 10, they're saying yes. I'm willing to do an extra day because I want that extra chance. And so something to keep in mind is we do, um, most labs now do culture to day seven. I would ask your clinic if that's something you're concerned about. But we typically transfer day seven embryos last. So if you have other embryos, your day seven is going to be the last one because of that lower pregnancy rate. Uh, and really, you know, the philosophy on and some of the research shows in terms of why they have lower pregnancy rates is because they took longer to get to day seven. So maybe there was a genetic hurdle they had to, to jump over. Uh, maybe they're not as developmentally ready to be implanted and things like that. And so that's why they have typically lower pregnancy rates. They're usually more likely to be genetically abnormal as well. So if you're doing PGT testing, typically those day sevens, they don't come back normal quite as often as you know day five and day six embryos. But I think they're absolutely worth transferring um, I think it's worth it for clinics to do it because the research, again, has showed that they do produce live births. Even if it's at a lower rate, it does happen. So I think it's worth giving patients that, you know, any bit of extra chance that they have, I think it's worth it. Mm, absolutely. I mean, my last run of IVF I did about four years ago now, and there was no there was no talk of day seven. There was, you know, the potential maybe to go to day six, but that that was sort of unheard of by then. So that is something really important. So can we talk about the difference between grading and testing? So first of all, what is grading? What is the point? And if you get an embryo that is a poor grade in inverted commas, is that still going to provide a healthy baby? There's a lot of questions there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with the difference. A, <laughs> I think that's a great question. Um, that is one of my most asked questions. I know we talked about this before. I get that question almost once a day is embryo grading. What does it mean? Why am I getting these numbers and these letters and all these things? So I'll do a quick rundown of what the grading kind of scale is in general. Your clinic may be a little off from this. Um, and then I'll talk about kind of the difference between the two. So if your clinic is using the Gardner grading scale, which is where they have a number in the front and two letters, which is very common. Um, we are looking for three things when we are grading those embryos. The first, which is the number in the grading um, system is the expansion of the embryo. That tells us 
essentially how mature the embryo is. As the embryo grows and starts to expand, it has a shell around it. And that shell starts to get thinner and thinner. And eventually the embryo comes out of that shell. All embryos have to come out of their shell or zona, we call it the zona, um, to implant. And so we look at how thin or thick that zona is to give us an idea of um, kind of the maturity. And so that we give that a number grade. And that's typically between one and six, where there's a lot of typically threes and fours, fives and sixes. You rarely see ones and twos. Um, And I don't like to think of this as good or bad. It gives us an idea of how mature the embryo is. So you may choose a 4AA over a 6AA. That doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other. It just kind of tells us how mature, how mature the embryo is. That's kind of how I like to think about it. The first letter in that grading system, you know, you've got the number, which is expansion. Now we're on to the first letter. That first letter is the grade of the ICM, and that stands for inner cell mass. That is what becomes the baby. And that is graded on a letter scale, like at school, A, B, C, D. Typically, we don't go any further than that. And that is based on a good, fair, poor sort of um, system. So A is good, B is fair, C is poor, D, you typically don't see a D because those are ones that are so poor that we don't think that they're worth freezing. For that ICM, it's kind of a ball of cells in the embryo. If you've ever seen an embryo picture, there's usually some nice pretty cells and there's one spot where there's a bunch of cells kind of clumped together. That is what that ICM is. And we're really looking for a nice, compacted ICM with healthy cells. We don't want to see a lot of cell death. Um, and that's kind of how we're grading um, the ICM there, which is that first letter. Now, the last letter in the grading system is for the trifectoderm. That is what becomes the placenta. Those are the other cells around the ICM. And again, that is graded on a letter scale from A to D. Um, again, A is good, B is fair, C is poor, D typically we don't see, uh, or you guys don't see. Sometimes we'll see them in the lab, but they don't usually make it to the embryology report. And for the trifectoderm, we are really looking for kind of a cobblestone look. If you ever have seen a cobblestone street, you want to see lots of packed cells there, nice and plump. We don't want to see any bald spots in the embryo. So sometimes, you know, cells will develop on one side of the embryo, but the other side hasn't quite grown on that side yet. Um, we may lower the grade if we see something like that. We don't want to see a lot of extruded cells. So as embryos grow, sometimes there's a cell that's not doing good. It's genetically abnormal. It's dying. The embryo will kick it out. And so we don't want to see a lot of those because it's really trying to fix itself if it's got a lot of those cells kind of that it's trying to push out. So those are kind of the three parts that we're looking for that makes up that grade. And then together, those letters make a good, fair, poor. So, you know, an AA and AB, those are considered good. BA and BB, sometimes BC, depending on your clinic's preference, is considered fair. And then CB, CC, anything with a D is considered poor. So that's a quick rundown. I know it didn't seem quick, but <laughs> it was just like, I could have gone way more detail. And so, you know, your question about, hey, is a poor quality um, graded embryo going to give me a healthy baby? They definitely do. They do. I like to have the perspective, hey, if your embryologist thought it was good enough to freeze, 
they think it's good enough to transfer. Now, some of the, you know, the difference between embryo grading and testing of like PGT testing, which is pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy or monogenetic disorder, whatever sort of testing you're doing is typically PGTA. That tests for things that happen, PGTA anyway, tests for things that happen um, during the growth of the embryo. So genetic abnormalities like um, Down syndrome, you know, trisomy 18, Kleinfelters, Turner syndrome, any sort of disorders that you do not pass from parent to child, but happen during the growth of the embryo. And embryo grading, we cannot see any of those things just based on looking at the embryo. So the grade gives us an idea of what the embryo looks like because we can't see the DNA through the microscope. But we are able to take cells from the embryo, open those cells, look at the DNA, and tell, you know, it, they're able to tell us what that genetic makeup is. Um, so they're definitely separate. A lot of research, so there's a lot of research in embryo grading and, you know, the likelihood of it being normal. And there is some research that shows as we get lower on that grading scale, we're more likely to have genetically abnormal embryos, which means we're more likely to um, not have pregnancies from those lower quality embryos. Again, it is not zero. We do think they're worth transferring. And I see plenty of times where an AA embryo is genetically abnormal and the CC is completely normal. It happens all the time. So don't, there's not enough of a correlation to say that that we can go about it that way, or we wouldn't need the testing. So definitely you can't correlate the two together, but there is a more of a likelihood. So hopefully that, that answers that question. It's very long-winded, but those are kind of the differences and you pretty much always will get embryo grading, but you, you don't have to do PGT testing. That is something that you and your physician can decide you know, together that that's a good fit for you so that you don't have to do both, but you will get an embryo grade. Got it. So what is the likelihood that you would have, let's say, you know, a 6AA embryo, it's genetically tested, it's normal, you transfer it, and it doesn't work? What are the chances of that? And why could that be happening? Yeah, so there is a likelihood that it, it doesn't work. It really is dependent a lot on the patient. I would say, in most cases, chances of pregnancy from a genetically normal embryo, 50 to 60%, depending on the patient. Um, it is very patient-specific, which is why I mention these things so often, um, because they're so, everyone's bodies are so different. But some of the reasons why that could happen, you know, we want to make sure that we're making sure the lining looks good, all hormone levels are in the right place. But there are times where patients come to me and they're like, everything looks per perfect. You know, my lining was good. My embryo was good. Why did I still not get pregnant? And something we have to keep in mind is while PGT testing is great and it's very accurate, it's not 100% accurate. And there are things that it cannot test for. So when we're looking at PGTA testing, we are looking at whole chromosomes or large chunks of chromosomes missing or an extra one or things like that. But there are small things, micro deletions, micro duplications that are small parts of the chromosome that PGT testing cannot test for. Um, so I always like patients to keep that in mind. Well, it gives us a lot of information and very good information. It can't test for everything. And there are possi possibly um, genes that are really small that 
you know, get duplicated or deleted that are important in that implantation process. Um, and that's, that kind of goes the same with patients who get pregnant with a PGT normal embryo and then unfortunately have a miscarriage. There's possibly things in there that we, we didn't know for sure that were completely normal, things that were missing or things that were duplicated or slightly changed. And so there's still a possibility that, you know, that abnormality is causing you not to get pregnant. Um, the number one cause of miscarriages is genetic abnormality in the embryo, even when it's PGT normal. And it's so heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the last thing you expect. And, you know, as incredible as this science is, it isn't exact and it's never going to be as clever as your body, is it? You know, your body will know at the end of the day. Oh. And you've already gotten so far at that point. I, my heart breaks for patients because it's, it's hard to even get to that point where we're at a transfer. You worked so hard to get there and you know, it's, it's so heartbreaking and disappointing. And so it's, it's, it's hard to have those conversations with patients. Mm. It really is. Oh, I imagine the fact that you have to call people and give them an embryology report. I mean, that's just, you know, you sit there and you're, you are staring at your phone and to have to make those calls, Elise, my gosh, that would be mm-hmm. one of the hardest parts of your job, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, you know, it blows my mind that you can freeze an embryo and you can keep in the freezer for a year, five years, 10 years, and it then becomes a baby. <laughs> I mean, we could go into the science of how that works, but um, mm-hmm. I know that in some rare cases and as unfortunate as this is, when you go to thaw those embryos, they don't survive the thaw process and then they are not available for transfer. So why does this happen and does it happen very often? Yeah, that's a great question. I know. Patients are very stressed around this time, which is completely understandable. They spend all this time getting these embryos and they're prepped for a transfer. And then on the morning after transfer, something, you know, catastrophic happens. I will say as technology and technique and media has gotten better, we, you know, constantly see an increase in survivability of embryos, which is great. I'd say most clinics have at least a 95% survival rate. Most clinics, it's even, you know, higher than that. 97, 98% of embryos are surviving. So it's fairly high that embryos are surviving um, the warming process. And it really, especially if they're using newer techniques. So if you have an embryo from 20 years ago, that's very different from an embryo from a year ago or two years ago. Um, Typically, the reason that it doesn't survive the thaw, if that does happen, which again, it's fairly low at this point, Usually it's because of cell damage. So what we're doing when we're vitrifying an embryo is we want to really avoid any sort of ice crystals because when water freezes, it expands. And those, you know, perforate cells. They make sharp edges and they're not great for embryos. And so if there was a a point in the process where, you know, potentially some sort of water droplet was introduced or wasn't frozen properly or your media, you know, wasn't as good as it could be, there's a possibility that you're introducing those ice crystals, which are really damaging to embryos. We expect to potentially lose a cell or two when we're vitrifying and warming because that's the process. That cryoprotectant, while it helps protect against, you know, cryo damage, in and of itself is not the healthiest for the embryo, if that makes sense. And so we do see some damage here and there. What I like patients to think about is that embryo quality that we talked about and how if we have a lower quality embryo, 
we have less cells. That's refractoderm. If it's a seed refractoderm, that means we've got some bald spots. We've got some cells that don't look quite great. And if we're losing two out of 10 cells, that's very different from losing two out of 100 cells. So those are some things, you know, that to keep in mind when you're thinking about or working with your physician on choosing embryo for transfer and things like that. Um, like I said, it is very uncommon at this point to not have an embryo survive a thaw. But if it doesn't, that's likely what has happened is we've lost too many cells and the embryo cannot recover at that point. It can't It can't come back from having that many cells lost. And it's a really sad day for us in the lab too. We don't, it's, it's horrible. We don't want to have to make that phone call and talk to the physician about it. It's not, it's not a fun thing. We don't want that for patients. Um, and thankfully it does happen fairly rarely at this point. Mm. Yeah. Thank goodness. I mean, you don't hear about it as much. I find these days it's sort of a given that, you know, you're going in for your FET and it's going to be there ready for you, but mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to talk about those things as well. Um, Elise, I have two more questions for you. And I think this is sort of more like zooming out and sort of going back in time a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I find, you know, 99% of the people I work with are women and they're told frequently, like it is all about egg quality and, you know, egg quality, this and that and age and et cetera. But I think that we don't talk enough about sperm quality. So what do you think is Mm -hmm. like the ratio there? Are they equally as important? And my second question is how can we prepare for the IVF process in terms of getting our bodies ready, getting the best quality embryos together? Mm -hmm. Great. And this is one of my favorite topics because I do think there's so much pressure on people who've got eggs to you do do a crazy diet or get healthy and all these things when sperm is just as important. I feel like I can't make that any more clear. Sperm is so, so important. Um, some of the research by Resolve, which I think is a fantastic organization, um, they estimate about 30% of infertility is due to egg quality. 30% is sperm quality. 30% is a combination of the two, and 10% is in that unknown um, infertility category. So sperm is very important. It's very, very important. And so, you know, personally, when patients are saying, what diagnostic test should I get? Semen analysis is top of the list. It's not invasive. It's fairly cheap. You can do it at any time. It's not cycle dependent. Get a semen analysis for your partner or sperm source. 100%, that's one of the first things that should be done. Um, I wish there was some more emphasis on semen testing and sperm testing, and we went a little bit deeper into that. I think there are a lot of people advocating for that. So I think it's getting better, but definitely anything that you are doing to improve your egg quality, your partner should be doing as well to improve their sperm quality because it's half of the process. And so when I when I speak to people, I always tell them, this is not just a you think. This is something you guys should be doing together making these improvements to lifestyle together, to relationship, for your mental health, together. This is a this is a joint thing and it will improve outcomes for both. Um, and so some of the things I, I like to start with is always lifestyle because it doesn't matter how many supplements you take, how many medications you take. If you are not living a, a, as healthy of a lifestyle as you can, those things are, aren't worth taking. So I always tell patients, start with a balanced diet, I don't like to recommend any specific diet. Let's eat, you know, let's eat well, eat well, Um, whatever that means to you. Let's get some greens in there. Let's get some protein in there. You know, if you're going to have a slice of pizza on a Friday night, like you're not going to kill you, (laughs) kill your diet, you know, but let's try to eat, eat well, things that will fuel our body. 
Um, same thing with exercise. We want to be exercising regularly, whatever that is for you, moving your body, Zumba, bike, you know, riding a bike, all of these things, anything that you think is, is moving your body. I am all for, I, I'm not like a, you know, big circle on specific diets and exercise or whatever, whatever is, is making you feel good. Let's, let's keep that up. Sleeping well, that's a big one. Make sure you're sleeping well, making sure your relationship is healthy. Half of what we do is making sure couples are in sync with each other. When patients come in and they're saying, oh, we have intercourse once a month, we got to help that. What, what, what is that? You know, is there an issue there we need to address? Should we talk to a therapist? Let's get on the same page mentally, emotionally, all of those sorts of things to have a healthy, you know, chance of having a child and a relationship. Uh, mental health is super important for both partners. Um, we really want patients to come in as healthy as they can be, as well-rounded as they can be. Um, and that also includes cutting back on things like smoking and drinking alcohol, potentially caffeine if you're like a crazy caffeine person. Um, so all of those things that you think of generally wellness-wise, we want to you know make sure patients are doing their best to be as healthy as they can. And that's not perfection. It's not going to happen. Nobody's perfect. But let's do our best to work, you know, to be as healthy as we can before we start. One other thing I'll mention is any sort of change that you're making, whether that's cutting back on alcohol or getting more exercise or more sunlight or whatever, give it a few months before we see any changes, especially with sperm. Sperm takes about 72 to 73 days to go from immature sperm cell to mature swimming sperm. And so when anytime we make a, a medication addition or lifestyle change, you want to give it three months before you do any additional testing. So we give it enough time to you know see it working its magic. Um, and typically we say the same thing with eggs. You know, give it a, you know, a few months to, to see some changes there. And then aside from lifestyle, I do like to mention some, some supplements, although that's not where I like to start. Um, most patients are typically taking vitamin D, fish oil, and CoQ10. Always check with your physicians before you take these things. Again, I'm not a doctor and cannot offer medical advice, so it never hurts to run any of these, any of these things by your physician. Um, but those are the ones that I see patients on most often. Mm, such good advice. I, and I love the lifestyle piece. I mean, people do just you know zoom in on the supplement thing and they're like, oh, I've got to take my 20 supplements a day, which was totally me. But you know, the idea of getting outside, moving your body, getting some sleep is just as important, if not more, uh, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. such a, it's such a hard thing to find balance with, but thank you for emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is for you and your partner, you and your partner. <laughs> that's it. And the emphasis on your partner. I mean, you know, I have had so many students who have come to me and said, oh, you know, their partner went to the doctor to get a semen analysis and their doctor told them it wasn't necessary because they were young and healthy. And I just think, why? Where are these things breaking down? It's incredibly frustrating. Oh, uh, really least, thank never you. Know. I mean, I'm so sorry. I just keep going. But I'm no, patient. Keep going. Go I could talk through. to you all day. Oh, I could just keep going on because I get so fired up about this because I see it happen all the time. Patients will come and say, you know, I spent months doing diagnostic testing and we did all these ovulation induction cycles and they weren't working. And then we decided to see an analysis in it my partner has sesospermia or my partner has retrograde ejaculation or has a varicocele or all these things. And I'm like, the amount of time and money that was wasted on a hundred dollar or free semen analysis that they could have done the first week of treat, you know, diagnostic testing and treatment. Mm-hmm. So Which that is, is very, very, very frustrating. 
It's not exactly as you said, it's non-invasive. It takes no time. It's inexpensive compared to the female testing, which is, you know, blood tests and cycle dependent and ultrasounds, very invasive and very time consuming and expensive. It just blows my mind. So look, a topic for another day. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elise, is there anything else that you want people to know or to think about or just to be aware of when they're coming into IVF before we finish up? Yeah. Last thing I'll mention is having that support system is crucial. You know, having someone, they may not have gone through it, but having that person in your corner that you can cry to, or you can send a message and say, Hey, can we just grab a coffee? I don't want to talk about anything. I just want to go grab a coffee or, you know, go out to a movie or whatever is is so key. And if you're able to find that person or have that person, it it makes such a difference having that support. And and along with that, I always suggest that patients, if you're if you're you know able to plan your stem cycle, try to avoid any other outside appointments. Like don't schedule a dentist appointment or your family in town or your mother-in-law who stresses you out. Try to avoid that stuff. If you can, if you're able to move a work project or move an appointment that stresses you out to clear your schedule, go for it. It makes all the difference. Um, I've had a couple of patients tell me they hired, they hired someone to clean their house before their stems and it was the best, you know, a hundred dollars they ever spent because they didn't have to worry about it. They were able to just focus on themselves and their partner and everything that was going you know, on with them and, and removing any of that extra noise, if you can do it is, is so worth it. And so having that support and removing that noise is, is will set you up for success for sure. Mm, that is really awesome advice. Thank you. Elise, on behalf of everyone, thank you for sharing your time today and for everything that you share with the world. I mean, it's it, you do it in such a relatable way, in such an accessible way. You're so kind and so open with your knowledge. And I think that you help so many people. So we're grateful that you've been here to chat with us today and uh, we'll see you again soon. Where can people learn more about you or connect with you if they want to chat a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always open to Instagram DMs or TikTok DMs. So if you want to send me anything, um, my Instagram is just at aliesambriologist, same with TikTok. And I do have a website, um, aliesambriologist.com. Awesome. And we will link all of those in the show notes as well. Have a lovely rest of your evening and uh, we will talk again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you loved what you heard, be sure to share it with me by leaving a review so I can keep all this information coming your way. If you aren't already following me on social media, check the links below in the show notes to join me for more daily tips to support your fertility journey. And don't forget to visit my website to learn more about how the beautiful practices of yoga, meditation, and breathwork can support you as you're trying to conceive. Until next time, sending you all my love.